The Catholic Church has an obligation to welcome LGBT people, to show that they're beloved children of God, to celebrate their gifts, to listen to them, to accompany them, and to suffer with and even for them. Why? Because they're human beings. They're Catholics too. They've been baptized, and so they're as much a part of the church as me, their local bishop, or the Pope. Good morning. I'm Patrick Russomano, and this is Fordham Conversations. The man you just heard talking was Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest who wants to improve the often adversarial relationship between the LGBT community and the Catholic Church. Today, I'm talking to Father Martin about his book, Building a Bridge. The book calls for increased respect, compassion, and sensitivity between the Catholic Church and the LGBT community. Thanks for meeting with me today, Father Martin. Let's get started. First of all, what inspired you to write the book? Well, after the uh, Pulse nightclub massacre in 2016, where 49 people were killed in a largely gay nightclub in Orlando, I noticed that um, only a few bishops in the Catholic Church uh, really came out and said anything in terms of sympathy or support uh, for the LGBT community. And I realized there was a, um, you know, there's a great gap between what we say we are, which is compassionate individuals, and how we responded to that tragedy. And that really uh, started me thinking about the way the church welcomes or doesn't welcome LGBT people, and that eventually uh, ultimately led to this book. So besides the Orlando shootings, what else inspired you to write the book? Sure. I mean, as a Jesuit for 30 years and as a priest for 20 years, I've met LGBT people in terms of, uh, you know, counseling and confession and just, you know, random conversations they've come to me. I've written some stuff in America Magazine on the topic before. Uh, and so I think I have a pretty good uh, sense of what their struggles are, um, both, both as individuals and also as uh, members of the Catholic Church. You've been working with LGBT people for a long time. Where'd you get started? Uh, like many Jesuit priests, um, LGBT people, you know, especially in New York, I mean, in a big city, um, they just uh, seek you out. I think the fact that I had written some things in the magazine, in America Magazine, about LGBT advocacy meant that people were a little more comfortable with me. But, you know, any priest could say the same thing. You meet LGBT people all over New York in confessions, after masses, uh, you know, in different ministries. Certainly at Fordham University, you know, the Jesuit professors up there would know people. So it's, it's not unusual to counsel LGBT Catholics. And could you give me a little bit of background about your time as a priest? Sure. Well, I entered the Jesuits in 1988. I'd been a uh, graduate of the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania, and I worked at uh, GE for six years before I uh, decided to enter the Jesuits. And my training took me all over the place. I worked in Africa for a while. Um, I studied in Chicago and in Boston. And then I was ordained in 99. I did my first Mass at St. Ignatius, uh, 83rd and Park in New York. And then since then, I've been here at America Magazine. Uh, we're a National Catholic Weekly magazine. And uh, currently, I'm editor-at-large. And basically, what I do here is I write books, which you know, brings in money for, for the magazine. Could you tell me the church's stance on LGBT issues and why they hold these views? Well, that's a big question. Um, so first of all, one of the things that people don't know is that it is not a sin to be LGBT. So the church teaches that all people are created in God's image. They're all beloved children of God. I think we tend to overlook that. Secondly, the church asks us to reach out to LGBT people with... Uh, which is the subtitle of my book, Respect, Compassion, and Sensitivity. So we need to be respectful. Uh, at the same time, the church teaches that same-sex relations and same-sex 
you know, marriage uh, is impermissible. So they're very, there's a very kind of strong line against that. Yeah, so church teaching uh, in the Catholic Church uh, about sexuality is that uh, the only right use of sex uh, is within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. And so, in terms of homosexuality, uh, the Catechism teaches that any sexual orientation that is not ordered toward that goal is what they call disordered. And so that's why they say uh, homosexual orientations are intrinsically or objectively disordered. So it, it comes from this idea of natural law. Now the criticism is that, um, you know, we see in nature a lot of, you know, homosexuality. And so that's the kind of critique to that, that, you know, if we're going to talk about natural law as flowing from nature, then we need to look around at nature, including uh, human nature. And, you know, we see, you know, incidents of maybe five to 10% of the population or even lower, it doesn't matter. That's part of nature. That's the kind of counter argument to what the catechism teaches. And what I'm trying to do in my book is to work within church teaching and really highlight those values of respect, sensitivity, and compassion to try to say, well, how can the church make people who really have felt on the margins for so long, um, you know, recognize that they're part of the church. They're just as much of the part, part of the church as, uh, you know, the Pope, uh, Cardinal Dolan, or me. So how has the church's stance on LGBT issues affected LGBT members of the church? Well, it depends which part of the church is teaching. I think the... Um, the part of the church teaching on sexuality, I think, um, you know, has not for the most part, and this is not me speaking, uh, been received or accepted by the majority of the LGBT Catholic community who are either sexually active or feel that they should be or have the freedom to be sexually active. You know, for the most part, I think that many LGBT Catholics have felt over the last few decades really marginalized from the church because, um, you know, the one teaching that they have heard is that you cannot have sex, period. And that seems to be the Sometimes the only thing that they're taught, so they're not taught that they're, you know, loved, that they're, that they're welcome in church. They hear uh, homilies that are, you know, thundering against same-sex marriage, you know, really focusing on their sexual morality to, an, to a degree that we don't do for straight people. I mean, we don't talk about, you know, for example, on college campuses, every homily at Fordham University's chapel is not about uh, sexual activity on, on college campuses, right? And yet for the LGBT person, that's a good analogy. That's, that's seemingly all they hear. And so a lot of them feel really unwelcome. Why have LGBT people been persecuted so severely compared to other people that have broken the church's rules? Well, I think uh, because it's easy to see the homosexual person as the other, right? Since there are fewer of them than straight people, uh, they are seen as different. I mean, for, you know, obviously centuries, millennia, they themselves were seen as, you know, in a sense, wrong. Uh, or somehow mistakes, and I think there's a great deal of homophobia that exists um, because of the sense of the otherness uh, of, the, of the homosexual person, of the LGBT person, and yet that goes against Christianity too, because for Jesus there's no other, there's no person who's kind of outside, who's, who's, who's different in a sense. For Jesus there's no other, there's, there's no us and them for Jesus, there's just the us. And so that's what I'm trying to show in my book, that what we really need to do is to try to stop treating LGBT people as the other, as, as the different, as the one that is hated, as the one that it is um, sort of lifted up as the, the greatest and only sinner, and also as the one who's uh, scapegoated for a lot of things. Um, you see this over and over again that, again, you know, many church leaders focus almost exclusively on LGBT issues, or when they're talking about the greatest sins in the, in, in the modern world, it's LGBT sexuality. What was your goal for this book? 
the gap between uh, the Catholic Church and the LGBT community is obviously not going to get healed overnight. So did you have any short-term goals? Yeah, I wanted to start a conversation, which I think is starting. Uh, sometimes for better or worse, uh, there are you know people who are entering into it thoughtfully. There are people who are entering into it you know with a lot of invective and hatred. But I really wanted both sides to try to listen to one another. Um, you know, I think part of the problem with the institutional church is that many bishops, and archbishops and cardinals and pastoral leaders as well, don't know many LGBT people. Now you might say, well, of course they do because they're in their parish, but you know they don't know a lot of people. They may not know a lot of people professionally who are out. Right. I'll give you a story. Um, a friend of mine worked for a bishop uh, as his social justice person. And the bishop and my friend, who was gay, would take car rides together and go to different meetings and parishes and things like that. And in the car, the bishop would say all these homophobic things and kind of insulting things to my friend, who was really hurt by them, you know, this, this gay man who worked on his staff. And I said to him, why, why don't you come out to the bishop? And he said, well, why would I come out to that guy? I mean, he's, he's really homophobic, and I could lose my job, and he doesn't like gay people. So what happens is, you see, the bishop is kind of closing himself off, in a sense, by his homophobia to getting to know a gay person who's on his staff, who's working for him, which is very sad. So there's this kind of self-selection that goes on among some of the church leaders who, because of their stance or because of their, uh, you know, kind of demeanor, uh, make it hard for them to get themselves to get to know LGBT people, and I think that's a real shame. So in your book, you make a difference between the institutional church and the church at large. Uh, could you explain the difference to my listeners? Yeah, so the church at large is, to use some language of the Second Vatican Council, the people of God. So it's basically everybody. So if you're Catholic and you go to Mass and you're as much a part of the church as the Pope is or, or Cardinal Dolan or me or, you know, Father McShane, right? But then there's the institutional church. And by that I mean uh, the people who make decisions. So, now that would be the Pope, Cardinal Dolan, but also Father McShane, also um, lay leaders who are, you know, working in parishes. And, you know, the, a woman, a lay woman who is running a Catholic uh, high school, who's president of a Catholic high school, would be part of the institutional church because she can make decisions about church institutions, you know, like who to hire or fire, that affect people. So, the two groups that I'm looking at in the book are this institutional church, the kind of decision makers, and LGBT Catholics. Um, and so those are the groups I think that I'm trying to build a bridge for because, uh, you know, many church leaders, again, have made many LGBT people feel very marginalized in their own church. I mean, I hear the most incredible stories of marginalization and uh, exclusion. So you've caught some serious flack on social media and on conservative websites. Some people have even accused you of being heretical. How do you deal with that kind of criticism and how do you respond to it? Well, if it's thoughtful criticism, I respond to it. So if it's, a, if it's an article or a website that you know, has some interesting questions or critiques, I'll respond. Yeah, that's part of being in a discussion. If it's ridiculous, like I'm a heretic, which is insane, I sometimes think these websites don't know what heresy is. I mean, heresy is sort of rejecting some formal revealed truths, like the incarnation or the, you know, the trinity or Jesus' divinity, right? Which I am clearly not doing. The book went through a vetting process uh, through my Jesuit superior. So it has an official approval. It's called the Imprimi Potest for my Jesuit superiors. It's been endorsed by uh, two cardinals, archbishops, bishops. You know, it is well within church teaching. So a lot of the criticism is just nuts, basically, to use a theological term. 
Um, and it doesn't really deserve my attention. So, I, I mean, you know, sometimes it bothers me, but sometimes it's ridiculous. I mean, some of the things that they concoct about things that I supposedly said are ridiculous. And, you know, I would no more listen to that than a crazy person on the street, you know, shouting something at me. One criticism uh, you received is that you did not mention the church's call to celibacy for LGBTQ people in the book. Why did you decide not to do that? Well, uh, I did mention it in the book um, and talked about the impermissibility about uh, same-sex marriage. A lot of people think that I didn't. The book's not about chastity or about sexual morality or about the sexual practices of LGBT people. Uh, it's about dialogue and prayer, basically. The first part of the book is about dialogue. The second part is an invitation to prayer. And basically, there are a couple reasons. One, I'm not going to touch that because I'm not going to you know, challenge any church teaching. Two, the most important reason, the two groups are just too far apart. So the institutional church is very clear about the impermissibility of same-sex relations. The LGBT Catholic community is very clear about their desire to be sexually active, right? And so I am not going to start at the place where the two groups are farthest apart. And also, you know, I, I read these right-wing comments and I kind of laugh. It's like, you know, not everything has to be about sex. If I were giving a talk once again at Fordham University to, and like I did, to incoming freshmen, right? I'm not going to give the entire talk about sex, right? I mean, there's all sorts of things that go on in people's lives, and, there's, and LGBT people's lives are much richer than just their sexual uh, natures. Hi, I'm Patrick Russomano, and you're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV. Today, I'm here with Father James Martin talking about his book, Building a Bridge which discusses the relationship between the Catholic Church and the LGBT community. So, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church describes homosexual acts as intrinsically disordered. What negative effects do you think this terminology has? The best answer I can give is something that uh, a woman told me, um, a mother, a couple weeks ago at a parish talk. And she said, do the people who write those things, i.e. the editors and the writers of the catechism, have any idea what, kind of, what that kind of language can do to a 14-year-old gay boy, for example? And she said, that kind of language could destroy him. And so I think what we need to do is we really need to listen to how this language is being received. Now, as I said earlier, it's highly theological and highly philosophical language, so ordered and disordered and objectively disordered, intrinsically disordered, what, what do those things mean? Nonetheless, those words have power, and when people read it, especially young people, they're really hurt, and as this mother said, they, it could kind of destroy a person and certainly make a person feel like they don't even belong in the church uh, or even the world. So, you know, particularly given the high ris risk of um, suicides among LGBT youths, we have to be very, very careful and sensitive, that's one of the words that, you know, I pull from the catechism, to how these things sound to people. We need, we can't, we, if you're talking to someone, you can't simply use language that is comfortable for you. You can't use language without being uh, attentive to the effect that it has on somebody. I mean, if I were speaking to you in totally theological language, you know, that maybe your, your listening audience would not be familiar with, what's the point? I'm not communicating anything. So we need to be sensitive, as the catechism says, to how the language is received. Okay, so have some churches been more accepting despite the stance of the church as a whole? Yeah, particularly in New York City, we're very lucky. I mean, there are many Catholic churches in New York City 
I live right next door in my Jesuit community to the Church of St. Paul the Apostle, which has a group called Out at St. Paul's, which is this huge, vibrant LGBT support group. They have, you know, all sorts of things. They have retreats and, and uh, lectures and events um, throughout the year. Uh, Francis Xavier Church, was it, which is a Jesuit church down at 16th Street, um, has a very vibrant LGBT community. Uh, you know, St. Ignatius Loyola is just starting one up. So you know, there are parishes that do it very well. There are dioceses that do it very well. A lot of it depends on the individual bishop, and a lot of it depends on the individual pastor and who's there at the parish. But I think people in, in larger cities, especially in the United States, are quite lucky. So what negative effects has homophobia had on the church itself? I think really extensive. Um, well, the worst thing is that it has driven many LGBT people from the arms of the church. It has made them feel unwanted, um, ignored, and excluded. And, and this is not some, something I'm sort of coming up with. I mean, people tell me that. They leave because they don't feel welcome. And it's not simply the language in the catechism um, or the fact that uh, you know, bishops and priests relentlessly focus on their sexual morality. It's comments, too, you know, about, you know, you're going to hell and, uh, you know, people who are fired, uh, you know, from church institutions. So it's really, it, it has a terrible effect, and I think, it's a real, I think it's one of the great sins of the church, homophobia. In the book, you call for greater compassion, respect, and sensitivity. Who specifically in the church do you think exemplifies these qualities? Well, I would say a couple of people. Certainly uh, Pope Francis. I mean, Pope Francis uh, is trying his best to be as welcoming as he can. He's trying to go out to everybody in the margins. Now, it's not just LGBT people, and sometimes he doesn't do it perfectly, but he's really doing his best to kind of bring people in. Second, Cardinal Tobin, as I mentioned, uh, he had that wonderful welcome mass for LGBT people, which is really extraordinary. I mean, that's a really unusual thing to do for a sitting Cardinal Archbishop. And thirdly, I would say Cardinal Supich, Blaise Supich, who's the Archbishop of Chicago, who just a couple days ago talked about wanting to have listening sessions with LGBT people, and who also talked about needing to use the words gay and LGBT, which has also been something that we've been struggling with at, uh, you know, in the church. So I think Francis, uh, Cardinal Tobin, and Cardinal Supich. You also emphasize the need to change outdated language and the need to refer to people by the preferred terminology. Why is this so important? Because it's part of respect. Uh, we don't use terms like Negroes any longer, which is antiquated and I think to some people very offensive because that group has asked us to use African Americans or blacks. Uh, recently I found out we don't say disabled people, we say people with disabilities. So I will use that. Why? Because it's respectful to call people what they want to be called. And certainly the LGBT community, I mean there are many acronyms, it's gay, lesbian, LGBT, queer, LGBTQ, those kinds of things. But we need to listen to what people are asking us to call them. I mean, that is the first step of respect, and I think that is the least that the church can do. So in your book, one of the main themes is the bridge you want to build between the church and LGBT people. You tell people to look at Jesus as an example. Why use Jesus as an example? Well, that's a great question. He really was the bridge, uh, and he went out always to people who were on the margins. So if we look at stories like the story of Zacchaeus, which I liked. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector in Jericho, and Jesus was walking through the town with his disciples. And Zacchaeus was short in stature, as it says in the Gospels, uh, in Luke. He climbs the tree to see, because uh, he wanted to see who Jesus was. Now, Jesus is going through Jericho. There's probably thousands of people there. There are probably, you know, dozens of people who are following him. The chief tax collector at the time would have been seen as the chief sinner because of his kind of collusion with Roman authority. So not to say LGBT people are the chief sinners, but they feel marginalized like Zacchaeus did. 
So who does Jesus go to? When he goes into Jericho, he calls up into the tree and says to Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house. In other words, what's he doing? He is reaching out to the person who is the most marginalized, who's trying very hard to uh, you know, see who Jesus was, just like LGBT people do today. Zacchaeus comes down from the tree. People grumble, like they are today. They're grumbling online you know, for Jesus kind of extending this sense of welcome. And then he, he says, whatever it takes, I will repay people four times over if I've defrauded anybody. You know, he's moved to kind of conversion. And I don't mean to be clear, like conversion therapy or something like that. But, you know, the kind of conversion we're all called to. What's the point of that long story and that long exegesis on Zacchaeus? It's that Jesus went out to people who felt like they were on the margins. He built a bridge between the disciples and also the people of his day, the Jewish people of, of his day, to people who were on the outside. Tax collectors, uh, people who were sick. Um, Roman centurions, prostitutes, people who were seen as, you know, on the outskirts of society. And frankly, that's what Pope Francis asked Jesuits to do. Jesuits are supposed to go to the peripheries or the margins. And that's where the Pope asks us to go, uh, Pope Francis. That's where Pope Benedict asks us to go. And that's where Jesus asks us to go. And there's no one who's more on the margins of the church than the LGBT Catholic. So how do you think uh, Pope Francis has affected the relationships between the LGBT community and the church? That's a great question. I think his five most famous words are, who am I to judge, right? Which was originally asked of him about gay priests, but then he expanded it to mean, you know, all homosexual or LGBT people. That's revolutionary. And I think his words uh, about who am I to judge, but also words that he has talked about, uh, you know, he has a gay friend, uh, and he met his gay friend and the gay man's partner when he was uh, on his uh, papal trip to the United States in 2015. He's talked about Jesus never saying, Jesus would never say, go away from me, you're a homosexual person. And also the people that he has appointed, uh, you know, as cardinals and archbishops, you know, are much more LGBT friendly. For example, across the river, um, Cardinal Tobin of Newark had a welcome mass in the cathedral of the Archdiocese of Newark for LGBT people, and Cardinal Tobin was appointed by Francis. So that would have never happened five years ago. So, and people are responding to that. So LGBT people see that, and they respond to it, and a lot of them are coming back to church. Okay, so your book is about building a bridge between LGBT people and the Catholic Church. But why should LGBT people want to build a bridge with an organization that has actively campaigned against LGBT rights, especially non-Catholic LGBT people? Well, for some it would be, but, you know, I always point out to people that they are in the church already. So it's not why would these people want to be Catholics, it's there you are a Catholic, right? And, and where is your place in the church? Now, I can understand the desire, you know, or the sort of impetus for some people to leave the church, but, you know, I always turn it around to people and say, look, you have every right to be in this church. You are baptized. At your baptism, you were called into this church by Jesus Christ. And so why would you let anybody kick you out? What about uh, non-Catholic LGBTQ people? I think that, you know, you can find, particularly in New York and other large cities, places that are completely welcoming, where you would feel no sense of exclusion. So I think people are attracted to the Catholic Church not because of its particular teaching on one topic or another, but because it's a way to encounter Jesus Christ through the sacraments and through Scripture uh, and through the people of God. So it's a lot broader, I think, than just, you know, one or two particular issues. And do you think the church and the LGBTQ community can ever truly have a mutual understanding? given the long history between the groups and the church's sexual guidelines? Yeah, I do. I mean, again, they are already part of the church, and so it's a question of listening to people who are in the church, listening to their experiences. And I think, you know, the Holy Spirit, I, I think, can really help us uh, build those bridges. Now tell me about the second half of your book. 
It's full of prayers, Bible passages, and reflections on the Bible. How do you hope these will help people? Sure, I'm glad you asked, because that's actually the part of the book that has gotten less attention. And ironically, almost all the critics ignore the second half of the book, which is just crazy to me. Um, I think it's the more important part of the book. So the first part of the book is a, uh, an invitation to dialogue. The second part is an invitation to prayer. And basically what I do is I, I have um, uh, passages from the Bible, from the Old Testament, the New Testament, from you know, all sorts of places, from Psalms, from the Gospels. And I take them out and offer reflections, my own reflections, uh, as well as reflection questions. So for example, and I, and I focus on places particularly uh, where people are reminded of their own goodness, their own holiness, uh, Psalm 139, you, you know, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And they asked, you know, what does that mean for an LGBT person to read that in the Bible, right? And also uh, gospel stories where Jesus goes out to someone who's on the margins. So in addition to Zacchaeus, which I mentioned, there's the wonderful story of Jesus and the Roman centurion. Uh, he's in Capernaum, which is a seaside town of about 1,500 to 2,000 people. And um, a centurion comes up to him and says, you know, will you heal my servant? And he says, can you come, uh, Jesus said, I'll come to your house. And he says, no, I'm not worthy that you should come to my house, you know. Uh, I have people under authority too, and I say to one, do this, and he does it, go here, and he goes there. And so just say the word. And for Catholics listening, that's the guy who we talk about every day at Mass, you know, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. That's, that's the centurion. And Jesus praises his faith and say, never in Israel have I found someone with such faith. So what's the point of the story? Now we might say, well, it's about Jesus' ability to do miracles, which it is, right? I mean, he's the miracle worker, among other things. But it's also about how he meets someone who is totally outside of Jewish culture. I mean, this guy, he's a pagan. He's a pagan who probably believed in multiple gods. And what does Jesus do? He does not say, hey, you sinful person, you know, maybe if you thought about converting to Judaism, I'd talk to you, right? Or get out of here, or you're a disgrace. He encounters him. He listens to him. He takes what he's saying seriously, you know? And then he does a favor for him. Then he heals the servant. And then he praises the guy's faith. Imagine how all the Jewish people felt to hear this Roman centurion's faith being praised as better than theirs. It's like the story of Zacchaeus that I mentioned earlier, that he's going out to someone on the margins, and he's not saying, sinful person, you're going to hell. Or he, he, The first thing he does is welcome. So for Jesus, it's really community first. It's kind of welcoming the person into community, and everything else comes second. And that's the way we should look at the LGBT person. So that's one of the reasons that... Reflecting on scripture and reflecting on what Jesus did, um, you know, in your, in your prayer, uh, but even talking about it with other people is really helpful for us to move ahead. Now, bridging the gap between the Catholic Church and the LGBT community will take a major change. Can you tell me about other major changes the church has made in recent years? The Second Vatican Council, I mean, in terms of our outreach to our Jewish brothers and sisters. And, you know, before Vatican II, you couldn't go into a Protestant church. Right? Yes, you couldn't. I mean, you couldn't go to a Protestant before the 1960s. You couldn't go to a Protestant mass. You, I mean, it was really considered as sinful, right? Uh, and the Jewish people were referred to as it's a terrible term in the Good Friday liturgy. They're perfidious Jews. I mean, imagine that. So, so things changed at the Second Vatican Council, and there are a lot of bridges being built. And if we can build bridges to people outside of our faith, we should certainly be able to build bridges to people within our faith. Now, I know the Bible is a holy book for Catholics. But what does this really mean? What really elevates it? Well, I can only speak about that as from a theological or spiritual point of view. We believe that the Bible is the living Word of God, so it's different than just a book. It's not uh, Moby Dick. It's not Harry Potter. I mean, those, you know, those are two great books, but 
it is, it is something more. It's the living word of God. It's where we encounter God. And so it has spoken to people throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, because it is, it is sort of Im imbued with the spirit. So when you're encountering the scripture with an open mind, it's, it's a way of encountering God that, that any other literature can't, uh, can't do. And so that's why I'm in the second part of Building a Bridge. I'm really trying to focus people on this uh, way of encountering God, and particularly for LGBT people who have felt marginalized or excluded or hated or unloved by God. I'm offering them passages that can show them uh, through their prayer, you know, how they are loved by God and how they are part of the church. Now explain to me what you mean by encounter God. How do Catholics encounter God? Explain this to a secular person. Well, uh, encounter God in your prayer. So sort of feel God, God's presence, uh, have insights, memories, emotions, desires, feelings. I mean, all the things that happen in prayer. Uh, even if it's an insight, you know, we sometimes denigrate insights. If you're reading Psalm 139 as an LGBT person who feels excluded or who feels unloved or if parents told them that you're, you're, you're a piece of dirt or whatever, and you read Psalm 139 that says, For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You might have this insight that, wow, you know, God knew me before I was born, and God made me this way. And rather than seeing myself as someone who's damaged goods, you can see yourself as a beloved cre creation of God. So, so that's like the insight, I think, that people can get through prayer. And do you have anything else you'd like to add? I would just like to say to LGBT people um, who may feel, who are Catholic, who may feel uh, on the outs from the church, that you have just as much a right to be in the church as the Pope does. Uh, you were baptized, and if anyone says you don't belong in the church, you just pull out your baptismal certificate and show it to him. I would like to thank my guest, Father James Martin. You can follow Fordham Conversations on Facebook and Twitter and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Patrick Russomano. Thank you.